And she then said to him, Fran, aren't you going to say something to these young men? And he then reluctantly held up his hand like this to the side of his face. And he said, yeah, I will. I'll just tell you briefly about the supernatural being right here. So he held his hand up beside his face. He said, the supernatural is right here. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Randall McCauley of his recent article, What Would Francis Schaeffer Say to Today's Evangelical Church? Now, if you've been following Christ Overall, you know that Francis Schaeffer was our focus in the month of October, and that engaging evangelicalism is our focus in this month, the month of November. So you might ask, what are we doing returning to Francis Schaeffer? Well, the answer to that is twofold. First of all, Francis Schaeffer spent a great deal of his time engaging evangelicals and evangelicalism. And the second reason we're turning to Francis Schaeffer, or better, transitioning to the topic of evangelicalism by way of considering Schaeffer, is that we have the chance today to talk to Francis Schaeffer's son-in-law, Randall McCauley. Randall McCauley knew Francis Schaeffer intimately, worked alongside him at Labrie, and has continued a robust ministry of evangelism and apologetics for the last number of decades in the United Kingdom. And today, he's going to talk with us about his article, What Would Francis Schaeffer Say to Today's Evangelical Church? And in our conversation, we'll get to learn a bit more about Francis Schaeffer, but specifically how Schaeffer engaged evangelicalism and how his life and thought may still speak to evangelicals in our day today. So, all the way from the United Kingdom, we welcome Randall McCauley to the podcast. Thank you, David, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be with you. It's a joy to have you, brother. Look forward to this conversation. Today, we also have Steve Wellam, professor of theology at Southern Seminary and editor of the Southern Baptist Journal for Theology. And it was Dr. Wellam who recruited Randall to write a piece on Francis Schaeffer a number of months ago in the edition that ran on Francis Schaeffer. And today, we're going to talk with him and Randall about this subject. So welcome, Steve, back to the podcast. Dave, it's great to be with you. And uh, Randall, what a privilege to be able to speak with you today. Absolutely. Well, let's start with just getting to know Randall McCauley a little bit more. Randall, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I was born in South Africa, and I went to Cambridge in 1956. Now, for those of your listeners who are not aware of the history of Labrie, Labrie started on April the 1st in 1955. Now, I, of course, had absolutely no idea about what was going on in Switzerland. <laughs> in 1955, but I had an intriguing conversion, and it led up to my meeting Schaefer at the end of my second academic year in Cambridge doing law. The actual date, I can remember, it was the 8th of June, 58, and by that time, Labrie had been in existence three years. And I met the Schaefers one afternoon. I'll tell you more about that. But my own background was interesting, and that's where, you know, my conversion fits into the whole story that we're going to be talking about quite well, I think. Because I wasn't aware of it at the time, but in microcosm, I see it now, looking back, as having moved through what in macrocosm the whole of our Western civilization has gone through. Namely, I left the school that I was at, which was a quote, church school, sang in the choir, so I know the liturgy of Thomas Cramer very, very well. 
and I love it, and I you know, use it in my own private prayers and so on. So I knew a lot about the Bible in that way, chapel regularly, etc., etc. And I was sincere, and I was later confirmed into the Church of England, it's called the Church of the Province of South Africa. But then when I left, I had about 18 months before I could go to Cambridge. In fact, I hadn't been accepted that time, so I was waiting to see whether I would be accepted or not. And I was doing what we call in England a sort of gap year, and I was teaching at a school in Johannesburg. And a young man by the name of John Hort, who was ironically a graduate, a recent graduate of Cambridge, was on his way touring the world, and he happened to teach at the same little prep school that I was teaching Latin at. And a few conversations with John, who was a typical, you know, your typical atheist of that generation, and still today, he just dispelled all the ideas that I had about the supernatural and miracles and Jesus, the Son of God, and so on. And so I remember walking out of a church in Johannesburg one evening after a service, and when the benediction came at the end, I sort of muttered under my breath as I walked out of the church, I do not believe in the Father, I do not believe in the Son, I do not believe in the Holy Spirit. Now there's the parallel you see with the Enlightenment rejecting God, rejecting the supernatural. And then I started to ask the question, so then what does exist? Well, put it another way, what kind of a universe am I in if it's not a created universe? And then I quickly concluded that it was a pretty grim scenario, meaningless. To use a Buchner's illustration, it's like a ball going around another ball and absolutely no purpose in the whole thing. So I slowly started to disintegrate inside. As with so many people, externally, you know, you're operating okay. But inside, I was feeling the pressure intensely so that when I now was accepted by Cambridge and I was going to Cambridge in a few weeks, inside, when I got up to my relatives up in Scotland, I was saying to myself, help, I didn't even see the point of going to university, you know. <laughs> No morality, where does morality come from? What is justice, etc., etc.? So you get the parallel I'm describing with the culture, with existentialism, etc. By the time I reached Cambridge, I was in, in poor shape. That was in October 1956. But a dear friend of mine had become a Christian ahead of me, one year ahead of me, from school in South Africa. And he took me along to a, a typical evangelistic meeting run by the KICU, which is the Christian Union, the intervarsity work from which all the Christian unions around the world have originated. And I was soundly converted, and I just absolutely loved the Bible straight away. But here comes the important button. I'll finish with this. The problem I had as I went on, so now I'm 18 months or more, just a bit more, till I met the Shapers. The problem I had, I describe it as the, the pietist hangover. By that, I just mean that the evangelical churches around me and the Christian Union were heavily involved in that pietist mindset which had come down from Germany in the 18th century, which basically said, you know, that Christianity is about the heart, not the head. That's what on the one side. So not intellectual. And then on the other side, Christianity is about the private that is my own personal engagement, devotions, uh, godliness, etc. And it isn't the public, meaning the engagement with society publicly. 
So all of this was colouring how I was seeing Christianity. And I believed that it was true. I wouldn't have become a Christian if I didn't. It had all resonated, Jesus, the Bible, etc., my own experience, sin, etc., etc. But I was beginning to wilt. I think that's the best way to say it, just wilt as a Christian. And into that picture then the Shavers arrived, 8th of uh, June, 1958, and we weren't paying much attention because we'd just done our exams. We were heading off on vacation and so on. And Schaefer came in and uh, rather embarrassedly, because we hadn't a clue who he was, come from Switzerland, wearing strange clothes, a very beautiful wife, very intense dark eyes and very intense. And she then said to him, Fran, aren't you going to say something to these young men? Because about a dozen, uh, eight, eight maybe, maximum. And he then reluctantly held up his hand like this to the side of his face. And he said, yeah, I will. I'll just tell you briefly about the supernatural being right here. So he held his hand up beside his face. And he said, the supernatural is right here. And now you see the resonance for me was just fantastic. And then he sort of gave it about a 20 minute ad lib run through what eventually became the God, the God who is here, you know, Renaissance, Immanuel Kant, Hegel, etc. I didn't understand more than a hundredth part of it. Totally <laughs> <laughs> unaware, you know, uh, ignorant of all these things. But the one hundredth part that I did get was so exciting. And it was kind of like this, that I knew it was true in, in a sort of a deep gut feeling but I didn't know it in my head. And suddenly, it was as if, you know, a light went on and I thought, wow, it really is true after all. It's true objectively. Anyway, look, I hope that's enough of an introduction. Randall, that is, uh, I mean, it's just such a great story to hear of God's kindness in your life, to be able to give personal testimony to the ways in which, you know, what we read in books about Francis Schaeffer, just his personal impact on you. And you're right, it, it mirrors so many of the things at a cultural level as well. I really appreciate that. Yeah, but, but David, I, I mean, let me add to it. My experience, I have met people all the way through my life who've had a similar sort of a thing. Mm. And people, if I started to mention the names, you'd be amazed mm -hmm. at a very critical moment, same sort of thing, wilting as Christians or had given up on Christianity altogether. Yeah, so it's a, it's a wonderful testimony to the power of the truth. Well, Randall, we would love to hear more about just the man that you were just talking about, the one who had become your father-in-law and certainly was just influential for you to understand yeah. more of the God who is there. We're talking about just evangelicalism and engaging evangelicalism and thinking about the way that Schaefer did that. In your article that you write on some of these things, you address a couple of things that he's bringing out. So just to kind of get right into that, what is the two ideas that you bring out there of true truth and true spirituality? Those are things that he talks about that you bring out in your article. Just kind of define those terms and help us to get a, a foundation for understanding those things in Schaefer. Yeah, to just give you a simple illustration that he constantly used, which I loved, which brings it to, to, into reality very clearly. He would often say, if you were at the cross and you rubbed your hand up against the wood, you'd get a hmm. splinter. Hmm. By true truth, he meant that Christianity is not religious talk. It's not, 
a kind of a mysterious gobbledygook, you know, which you have to sort of feel certain things. He was saying, no, no, it's historical. It goes right back to the beginning. Somebody was just saying to me two days ago, he'll never forget, he was listening to a tape somewhere, years after Schaefer had passed away, and he heard Schaefer say, Christianity doesn't begin with Jesus Christ. Hmm. And he was absolutely shocked, just as I was the first time I heard it. <laughs> he said, it goes back to the beginning. Hmm. It was the first man and woman, the creation of the, of the universe. And the true truth that Schaefer was describing was that this is not religious language, it's not just subjective. I think mm -hmm. this, I like this story. Oh, it's so comforting, you know, and whatever. It was actually true that mm -hmm. there is a personal God. So the title of that book, The God Who Is There, is trying to explain that, mm -hmm. that he is objectively real. And in fact, mm -hmm. all of our reality is contingent on that. He then made the whole universe, including ourselves, as his image. So that's the one thing. And then the true, spiritu true spirituality was actually what he would, he wanted, David, to be the sort of key thing that he wanted to communicate to the church because it had been so important in his own life. He describes this the, in the introduction to True Spirituality. And it was the book that he first wrote, that he wrote first, but then wasn't published until later, after The God Who Was There had come out and so on. So in True Spirituality, he was saying, if this is true, if we do live in a supernatural universe, my right hand is up to my face, if that's the case, how do we actually experience it? It must be real. Hmm. We must, you know, he would say the moment-by-moment -moment relationship with the living Christ must be a real thing, that we pray, that we seek to love him and serve him, love our neighbors, be creative, etc. Mm -hmm. So I hope that sketches it out and could say a lot more. No, I appreciate that. And so those are certainly things that are themes that anyone reading Schaefer, and certainly as you knew him so well, are going to continue to hear from him. As we bring Schaefer to bear on evangelicalism today, he was speaking to evangelicals. He was addressing evangelicalism, certainly the concerns that he had. One of his last books was even putting in terms of a disaster that evangelicalism is. Steve, I'd be curious to know from you, when you think about the way that Schaefer understood evangelicals, oftentimes evangelicalism is defined in many different ways. What did he have in mind when he was thinking about evangelicals, evangelicalism? Who is he addressing with that terminology? I would take from listening to his lectures and books that he's looking at evangelicals who would profess certain orthodox doctrine coming out of the Reformation. So we're Protestants and evangelicals and the whole evangelical movement mm -hmm. that uh, occurred, you know, after the fundamentalist modernist controversies, the rise of evangelicalism. And then not only in terms of what we professed and believed, but also churches that identified with it. So a whole group of people that then saw themselves as heirs of the Reformation and of a different number of denominations, obviously, Reformed. And then you have in England, the Anglican, and then you have within Europe, United States, particularly United States, you know, Baptists, Presbyterians, and so on. So the evangelical movement that would be tied coming out of the Reformation and that would have then affirmed orthodoxy after the modernist controversies and the defense of Scripture and errancy and so on. So I don't know if Randall would agree with that. Yeah, the only other thing I would add is that he wasn't against the term at all, but mm -hmm. he preferred the very straightforward Bible-believing 
mm. which because that mm. was to him what the Reformation was, right. that it was recovering the Bible after the medieval church. And so the heritage from that, with all the different denominations, as you said, and he had a very wide appreciation of all the churches, accepting that there are differences, etc. And even Pentecostal leaders, you know, showed up on his, at his door. Mm. I mean, when I say even, even Pentecostal, I'm not trying to be disparaging, but just some who would be seen externally at a very different place than the mm-hmm. reformed position that you've just described, Steve. That's good. Yeah, it's interesting just going back to your testimony, Randall, and just even where you were kind of personally experiencing many things of the culture. I kind of have two questions here. One just has to do with the fact that you're experiencing that in in the European situation in the UK. And I'm just curious if there's a difference in what was taking place there than what's taking place in America here. And the illustration on the other side is that at about that same time, in the 1950s, Bill Bright in California was leading a group called Campus Crusade for Christ, what is known as Crew Today. And he was addressing the gospel in a way that really was kind of using some of the tools of marketing and even some of modernism to take the gospel and to hone it down into four spiritual laws. That was impactful for me when I was in college 20 plus years ago. But it just seems interesting that that was one of the ways that the gospel was being brought forward and addressing modernism, but maybe not being able to address some of the postmodernism that Schaefer began to see in Europe. So I'm just wondering, just what are some of the differences that you have seen between the things going on with evangelicalism there in Britain? and in Europe versus some of the things that are, have taken place in America. Do you have any insight on that? I'm glad you, you mentioned this, David, because I could have mentioned it earlier when I was talking about my wilting, my wilting experience. Mm-hmm. You remember um, when I was a young Christian and going along faithfully, Bible studies, etc., very little on the intellectual side, and yet I was doing jurisprudence, the philosophy of law, facing a, a very eminent lawyer who was my tutor, who was the professor at the university, and who wrote the textbook on jurisprudence that all the universities were using. And one had very little to say, do you get it? But on the other side, and here's the point, there's another term I've coined over the years, which is the virus of technique. The virus of technique. Meaning just that if you don't have confidence to then challenge people when they say they don't believe Christianity, don't accept the Bible, then you are left with a rather insecure and defensive attitude. And this is where I think evangelism, sadly, was what I call a sublimation. Now, I'm not saying any, in any way making a criticism of the desire to evangelize. And in fact, I would describe Schaefer as an evangelist. He, that's how he liked to, to speak of himself. He was an ordinary pastor, concerned for the gospel to reach out to the uh, people who are not yet believers. So I'm not making a criticism. I'm just saying, in relation to what evangelicalism have become, both in the UK and in the US, it seems to me we had sublimated our weakness on the intellectual side and poured our energy into a largely method-based evangelism. So it's the ABC. And you introduced Bright, I didn't. But <laughs> I think that that is the sort of thing. There were four spiritual laws, etc. That's what you, as it were, I know, I, I don't want to sound 
uh, unpleasant, but it was a routine. You know, you put on the, the machine and, and so it, everyone was very sincere, but very limited. And that's what, you know, I think Shaper just was so helpful to us all to so, show that this is a very big thing. I mean, this is an intellectual worldview of such power. You just think of people like Augustine of Hippo, you know, in the fifth century. Uh, city of God and all that. And we were depriving ourselves of this wealth. Now, I would say the difference between the UK and the US is just a matter of time, of chronology. In other words, what was happening to us a little bit earlier happened in the States. And I think that's generally true of a lot of things. So that we were suffering in various ways more from the assault, the intellectual assault, than in the US. And it's interesting that Schaefer started his ministry in England, but he'd been in Europe. So it was a European context in which he was most understood simply because the whole thing had developed further in the direction that I was saying earlier from the Enlightenment on. Now in the States, however, to balance it up, I would say and I'm not, again, trying to be rude in any way. The United States, I admire hugely, and especially its early history. But I think the virus of technique was something built into the culture in a way that it wasn't in Europe. And this then led to a supercharged, super powerful virus um, that was very difficult to crack. But Schaefer was very aware of it. And actually, in the beginning of true spirituality, when he's describing the, the big shift, the really fundamental shift that came in his own spiritual experience, this is what he looks to, that it had become too much of a routine. He was wondering where the reality was in the life. And then, very specifically, he used this expression repeatedly, we're not selling cornflakes. So I think his view on evangelicalism touched both of these things, what I called the pietist hangover, and then the virus of technique. Those are my terms. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's really helpful. And it just makes me think about the fact that even in the short time that I spent with Campus Crusade, they were kind of backfilling a lot of these things. I think it was in Campus Crusade where I was introduced to James Sire and the universe mm. next door. Mm. So this is 40 mm. some mm. years after their beginning. And so they're showing the need to be able to address worldviews. And of course, Sire is the one who also did a lot of the editing work on Francis Schaeffer's works with Crossway and InterVarsity and all the rest. So you can see how they were having to recover that because they didn't have that at the beginning. Steve, I'm curious just on this because I think this is a helpful thing for us to think about because that virus of technique that Randall is talking about, I think we still see that. At the seminary, as you teach students, do you, do you see that taking place where you have some who are maybe more looking for techniques versus others who are theological? How do you kind of see that? How do you address that? Well, most definitely you do. I mean, what Randall has said is exactly correct. And particularly in the American context, I mean, I come originally from a Canadian context and Canada even though it's tied to the British Commonwealth, is, is pretty much 
has picked up the techniques of the United States because of its close proximity. But I mean, the American culture has been known for years as being very pragmatically oriented. And I think our churches have picked that up. And we've gone through phases of churches. So back in 70s, 80s, 90s, church growth movement, seeker-sensitive movement, a lot of that was trying to address the person that wasn't coming to church. And we do so in a kind of pragmatic way. We give them good technique. We give them good music good entertainment, and then we give them a little gospel message. And then, of course, uh, with the shift to postmodernism, then it's moved towards liturgy and various incense and, you know, this kind of thing. But again, what was lost in this, and I think what Schaefer saw in this, was the grounding in truth, true Mm -hmm. truth, and then true spirituality, true reality, that if, Mm -hmm. you know, the gospel is true, it's objectively true, then it must show itself in our daily lives and reality, and you must wed those two together, and then in our event, Evangelism. I mean, over and over and over again, the inf- influence I've had from Schaefer is uh, you give them, you know, content, two contents, two realities, he said, ground things in objective truth, and also then call them to a true spiritual living out of the gospel. And so you need a full, robust theology to be able to do that. And I think even some of his interaction with Billy Graham and so on was concerned that uh, there was sort of a very reductionistic presentation of the gospel that wasn't robust. It wasn't giving us the big picture of, you know, starting with not just Jesus, as Randall said, but starting with the triune God who's there before the beginning and his entire plan. So these are areas that we see, and we see this in our training of students, depending on the churches they come from. They can be picking up very pragmatic techniques. They're influenced by the culture, and we have to then say, no, you've got to stand on God's word. You've got to preach the whole counsel of God. It has to be you know, grounded in objective reality, and it also has to be real, and there has to be a real relationship with the Lord. That's good. Steve, I want to pick up just some of that content and bring that back to Ranald and maybe even his first conversation with, with Francis Schaeffer, where he lists off all these different philosophers. And one of the questions I'm curious about, because that certainly seems to be a way in which uh, he spoke in addressing all these things and kind of connecting from one you know, artist to one musician to one philosopher and all the rest. How much did the audiences to whom he was speaking how much did they know the philosophers and the artists that he would bring into the discussion? I'm glad you raised this, David, because I think there's a misconception that you reading, shape that he's expecting you to become an intellectual. Okay, yeah, clarify, please. That was the last thing he was me. He was just saying that actually, when you boil it down, mm-hmm. it's a pretty simple story. The philosophers presented in a complicated way and with, mm-hmm. with big words and so on. But actually, it's quite, quite simple. And he had this gift of, I mean, I already told you, I understood only a hundredth part of it. I never understood anything about Hegel, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I didn't for years and years, and I still know only very little of it. But the, what he had was this ability to pinpoint the key issue and then illustrate it beautifully. So it didn't matter that you didn't know all the details. You get the story. You remember I said the hundredth part I, I got, which was so exciting to me. Here's an illustration. Matter plus time plus chance equals zero. I mean, you, you can't get anything more than just matter. And from the point of view of personality, that's not what you are. You are a person who loves 
and who thinks and who chooses, etc. There are many examples like that. Another one he used was of a young couple, who a real couple, American couple, and they were, as so many were in those days, goofing off. And they arrived in Paris, fell in love with each other. And then, because they were trying to be sincere in their rejection of all of the, the garbage from our, our heritage, they then decided that it was the only honest thing to, thing to do was to leave each other and head off in the opposite direction, which they did. And then they couldn't stand it. And they then came back together again. And in actual fact, I met the couple and they became Christians. But I think he used things like that to show that you can say one thing, you can reject God. But the philosophers, once they had rejected God, now you don't have to know their names, but the story went that I, the illustration I use of a, a lady's dress, which is knitted you know, out of wool. And she just has to snag one bit, and if there's pressure, the whole thing's going to come to bits. And that is what happened to Western thought. So you get rid of God, get rid of the supernatural. So you've got your Enlightenment philosophers, you know, Rousseau, Diderot, etc. And then it unravels very, very quickly. And the closer you come to the present, the faster it's unraveling. And so I think the audiences were just ordinary people, of course, they were struck by the, by the reality of what he was talking about because it impinged on them. They realized that the society was under duress because it was relativistic, but they knew that, well, that doesn't work, you know, like this couple. Or you can say, I don't love, you know, love doesn't exist, but man, you fall in love. I don't know if that helps. Steve, would you like to add to that? No, I think that's right. I mean, I think what he was doing in using the sort of Western thought was to show and to tell an actual story. And it was also an apologetic story is that if you depart from the God of Scripture, the grounding for knowledge, the grounding for understanding reality, the grounding for human dignity and human value is lost. One sad story of the intellectual history of the West is that they have departed and the present situation that we find ourselves in is precisely because I, false ideas were bought and consequences then resulted. And he, I think what you're saying is that he, people knew that in some sense, but he helped yep. make sense of that and he helped exactly. them identify with that and then present the gospel to them that here's the alternative yeah and it's I important think that's to, really to, sorry, helpful sorry david go ahead david no i think that's just helpful i mean in my own reading of schaefer that kind of dispels one of the things that can be seen as with all these different names that he really is assuming or he's speaking to people who have a better education or better understanding of these things than maybe today and we certainly can see the dumbing down of education today and assume that we need to change from schaefer but i can see that he's using that more as in illustratively he's using those illustrations to get to his main points more than making sure that people or that he's reading or speaking to those who already have a knowledge of all those things. Now, I mean, if we jump to where we are right now, the effect, the way I see it, is that we suffered a double whammy at the time of the Enlightenment. By that I mean that we had the intellectual challenge and then the repudiation, the rejection of Christianity, or revelation, etc. But we, at the same time, we had technology beginning and the technology has grown and grown and grown in influence and power. And 
when you put together the negation of value in relativism, etc., and then the ability to spread these ideas very, very quickly and widely and powerfully. I mean, just think of the music. I mean, I was came to Cambridge at just the time, you know, rock and roll, you know, the Woodstock, uh, Isle of Wight Festival, etc., etc., and it was just an explosion. Now, I think many would find Schaefer and his insistence that we need to deal with truth, the intellect, objective truth, etc., not well suited to a culture that is so engaged in the social media and the experience, constant experience, and a philosophy behind it which says that's all there is. So you, you do what you like, but whatever you do, you know, it's your thing and you're free to do it, and we must all tolerate that. And your identity is included in that as well. So I think my feeling about how Shape would speak to the present is he would say that, in fact, in chapter 8, of his book, The Church at the End of the 20th Century, he talks about the chapter's entitled, as I remember, a revolutionary Christianity. Meaning by that, that it's no good just having the answers or the challenges on the intellectual side. True, true. You have to have a challenge, but not a challenge, a winsome invitation, an appeal that gets through to people at the level of their experience so that they say, they find it very hard to contradict the fact that they have been loved themselves when they're in need. And I think that there have been many. I liked your expression, David, back, uh, sorry, Steve, it was backfilling, you know, that, that you have this awareness of evangelicals that the culture is in real need, and they heard Schaefer, and they may not have understood it all, but it affected them, and so... Things like, you know, when abortion hit, there were many who actually opened their homes, started ways of caring for women who were in great need, either before birth or after birth. And I think Shane was getting at something like that. Listen, if we're going to get through to a generation which is now postmodern, eaten up, existentialist, feelings-based, you can't just address people on the intellectual side. The problem I'm trying to deal with in the article is that many evangelicals, I call them new evangelicals, are identifying with those who reject the Enlightenment and rationality. And so I want to appeal to a sort of a experience-based, only experience-based, I should say, uh, approach to the modern world. I just think that that's it's futile because the Bible cannot be treated as if it's just experience. In fact, we're giving up the central issues. I think that's really good. And in fact, I want to tie a few of these things together, some things that you mentioned early, Ranald, as well as what you just said here, getting to the rationality and, and the reasonableness yeah. uh, with which Schaefer calls for and assumes that people are seeking that, as well as thinking about just going back to the beginning, right? That Christianity doesn't begin with Jesus. And I just want to quote something that you, that you wrote here and then maybe kind of dive into this uh, discussion. So you write, in the first place, he said, Christianity isn't rationalistic because it rests upon the reality of creation. It doesn't start with the human mind. That was Descartes' mistake when he said, I think, therefore I am. 
his assertion raised an obvious question. Where does the knowing self come from in the first place? No answer. He just assumed it. By comparison, the Bible starts further back. That's a point that you were making earlier. It says the individual is able to think only because he or she is a creature created by the triune personal God. And so I want to talk about just the doctrine of creation and the way that evangelicals today are are thinking about creation a little bit. What happens when an evangelical or evangelicals plural split the difference between an orthodox doctrine, let's say the Trinity, the virgin birth, heaven and hell, but then they hold something like Genesis 1 through 11 as myth or non-historical? What's going on there and why do we need to maintain kind of going back to the beginning and rightly understanding the doctrine of creation? Well, I think, first of all, it's so important for us to pause and reiterate that the creation is absolutely fundamental. I mean, you can put it this way, if you haven't got any creation, you certainly certainly aren't going to have any salvation. Now, I know that's, that's putting it sort of boldly, but the Bible is emphatic about the fact that history is the medium of all revelation. In fact, reality is, in a certain sense, a revelation in by itself. So we are made in the image of God. So you see a human being, you see yourself, and in a sense, you see the handiwork of God, and that is an objective reality which you cannot deny. Now, one has to decide, it's a choice, am I living in an impersonal universe, or am I living in a personal universe? We would say, and this was Schaefer's whole point, all the evidence is stacked up on the one side and not on the other. Everything is pointing, the heavens declare the glory of God, etc., etc., the image of God, is pointing to the fact that this is a created universe. Now, if you have within that um, a human being, human beings made in the image of God who are choosing and then who choose to disobey, and it then results in the curse, the judgment on all mankind, the brokenness of our experience. This is the biblical answer. If you take any element out of that narrative in Genesis 1, but in particular the existence of human, two human beings as the originators of the whole human race, and secondly, that they had a perfect relationship, that is, a sinless relationship with God, And thirdly, that they then chose to reject God's authority at the point of, you know, the fruit of the tree. And then finally, and this is the key thing from my point of view, this to me now, I describe as a fundamental of the Christian faith. And this was something Schaefer just repeatedly emphasized, that death is a consequence, I mean, physical death for human beings let me say it again carefully, physical death for human beings is a consequence of that choice. It does not precede that choice. Now, if you don't keep to that, and that's where the whole discussion is, I've been reading John Walton recently and others like that. Sadly, the influence has been very widespread. I just listened to a 2017 The Gospel Coalition discussion with Ligon Duncan, Tim Keller, and Russell Moore. And while there are elements of it for which one is very grateful, the assertion of 
a good creation by Ligon Duncan, assertion of the fall, etc. Where and then most of all, I mean, Tim Keller states very clearly that if there's a conflict between the Bible and what the scientists are saying, the principle we've always had from the early church is that the scripture is the authority to which we, we hold. Now, that is very encouraging in the current, current discussion. However, the obvious question is the elephant in the room, what about evolution? And nothing in the whole, in the whole conversation just deals with the issue of death before, before the fall. And that's, a, it's to my mind, just failing to say that, quite apart from the fact that we ought to be discussing whether evolution as a theory is something which is credible today, you know, with all the science. It seems to me what we lose is, we lose there. I just put it very simply, David, if you don't have a death in the fall, you don't have it in the cross. Mm, that's important, critically important. Steve, you're working on some of these things in your systematic theology. You're certainly seeing these things in the theological textbooks that are out there today. You know, is Randall right where, again, people are trying to have salvation without creation? Is that some of the things we're seeing here? Or what are you seeing? Or what would you want to, to add to what he's just said? Well, what, what he said regarding you, you can't have salvation without creation is exactly correct. And of course, that's how God has revealed himself, first as creator, and then the whole tragic fall that occurs in, in history, and then the great plan of redemption. So as you think of the you know theological doctrine, I don't know how to hold to orthodoxy and Christian theology without the whole, you know, what Scripture's saying in terms of the whole, and that involves real God, real creation, real Adam and Eve, a real fall in history. And what Randall has said, that death is tied to the fall into sin, and we cannot make sense of the coming of Christ, his work, what salvation is, the, the dawning of a new creation. Everything hangs together in terms of the Bible's own presentation and teaching on these matters. And we do see, sadly, as we've seen for many years throughout church history, the attempt to always have some form of syncretism. You take mm. what the Bible says, you take what culture is saying, and that varies in a whole host of ways. But in this area, particularly the science issues, obviously uh, we have to wrestle with the science issues. I want to argue that it's a Christian theology that undergirds a proper study of empirical science and so on that we've seen in Western society. But we have to then make sure that the science and the perceived science and even, you know, is the theory of evolution even valid and credible? I myself don't think it is. That is not wagging the dog and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, forcing us to then compromise scripture and read it in terms of that external grid in terms instead of what scripture itself is saying. Our lens for the world is looking at the world in light of scripture and we have both natural and special revelation, no doubt, but uh, we have to bring both of them together under the authority of Scripture. And many, many evangelicals for many years have compromised this point. Doctrine of creation is foundational, and it shows up 
in a whole host of other areas. You think of if you lose the first couple and you have an evolutionary view, there's no way that you'll be able to substantiate ultimately human dignity, you know, human sexuality, human marriage, human family, all of these things that we're seeing today in terms of LGBT, even the racial issue of trying to say what's the dignity of the races. It has to go, it, you know, we have to ground everything in the way scripture has done it. And Schaefer was, you know, he he saw that because he was holding to scripture and he was also prophetic in seeing if you give up these truths, this is where things will go and is precisely where things have gone. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think one of the things that comes out in Schaefer's writing and his speaking is an absolute dependence upon and an absolute confidence in the word of God, right? And we talk about engaging evangelicalism. Evangelicals have always been Bible believers. And yet it does seem that there seem to be those who want to either minimize the authority of scripture or to put scripture on authority with a great tradition, authority of scripture with evolutionary thought. I mean, many ways that lip service can be given to the word of God. And then in actuality, the word of God is taken down a notch here or there. And that's going to have devastating effects on the church, on doctrine, on individual lives who are building their lives on scripture and something else. And that's never going to go well. Randall, this week, sign off. We've had a, a great conversation here about a host of issues. And as we talked about beforehand, we could keep going for hours. Uh, but for you who have, you know, um, been with Francis Schaefer, you yourself who have engaged in ministry for, for many, many years, uh, what would you want to say uh, to evangelicals? Just kind of a, a final word of encouragement or, you know, counsel or rebuke. What, what would you want to, to say as we close off here today? Yeah, oh, that's very, very difficult. I think I would want to just end by saying we have drawn attention to some of the weaknesses in evangelicalism, but there are many encouraging things. And without wanting to get into the whole subject of Roe v. Wade, you know that that was one of Schaefer's passions. And certainly in the United Kingdom, it is acknowledged that amongst evangelicals, it was his voice that led to evangelicals becoming involved over here. But the recent shift, I just wonder as I, as I think back, just how, who, who could uh, possibly um, figure that, this one out? But I think there was an influence coming through. So despite the weaknesses, I think there has been an influence that has led to an engagement. Remember how I started with you know, the pietist hangover, and the failure to engage properly, either intellectually or socially. So I think there, and um, there are many other things, you know, that one, one could draw attention. I feel it's a, a weakness of how we have conducted this conversation, as if it's all negative. However, I think at the end of the day, what we are threatened with today is this postmodern adoption of irrationalism. And I, if I could end, this is a Tom Stoppard article. He was interviewed. He's the famous playwright. And he says, at some point in the recent past, I lost my optimism. He's speaking of Englishness, a subject which the playwright has in a 55-year career captured in its various shades. And he says, I think the new English men and women coming up now are falling into a world of, quote, personal truth versus truth, truth, end of quote. And that does not make a rational society. Now, I think that being, I mean, here's England, the U.S., same story, and um, increasingly the global story, in my view, in that it, I think his emphasis on true truth 
which is fundamental just to life, quite apart from the Bible. Because if you get, if, once you get, as he says, once you go down this route, you lose a rational society. And I think that was his great contribution. And we need to return to it. And how we do it is difficult. Um, but I think he really did make a huge impact. Well, that's really helpful. True truth, true spirituality. Those are two things that you bring out in your article. Those are certainly fundamental tenets in anything that is read, written by Francis Schaeffer. And those are things we need to keep holding on to. Randall, I want to thank you for just the time you've given to us today. This has really been helpful. Appreciate it. Steve, thank you as well. It's been a pleasure. Lovely to meet you both. Absolutely, brother. Yeah, thank you, Randall. And for our listeners as well, we give thanks to you for, for listening again to the Christ Overall podcast. If the conversation today has put in you a desire to think more about these issues, we encourage you to listen to Randall McCauley read his article. You can read the long-form article on our website as well. The entire month of November, we're looking at this theme of engaging evangelicalism. And if you didn't catch some of the things that we put out in the month of October on Francis Schaefer, you can go back to that theme and look at that as well. On the website, you can find more information about the newsletter that we put out on a monthly basis that gives you updates on the things that are going on with this ministry. Uh, there's also a place to be able to give to support the work of Christ Overall. And we would encourage you, continue to share the things that you read here, the things that you hear on Christ Overall. Pass this on to others in your church and friends as well, that they might be edified in the things of Christ. Until next time, remember, Christ is Lord over all. And so all things, let us exalt Christ. Christ.